This is Masonic Muscle, and this will be an exercise in speculation and critical thinking. Episode 12, Mason Monks, the Terranensians, and Astronomically Aligned Monasteries. In our last episode, we learned what the Cistercian Monks Eating Regimen consisted of. They turned out to be not vegetarians uh, because they ate meat, fish, and eggs, uh, but only on festive days. The Cistercians grew their own food, learned trades to help them build monasteries, trades like carpentry and masonry. Uh, they, uh, you know, they made bread, and depending on who was eating it, uh, if it was going to be the abbot, the main guy, he was going to have the better made bread with the with the, you know, more refined wheat and and uh, grains and what have you. And if the masons were Eating with them, obviously, they were going to have a piece of that, too. Uh, these monks wore white robes and have a ceremony to receive new brethren into the order that may have influenced the Masons of the time in their ceremony to receive new fellows of the craft into the guild. And what do I mean by, you know, they may have influenced them? Well, when the people that were living there the area was dominated by Catholicism. So whatever monasteries were built, the people would go there for mass. So it, you know, it's it just logical to think that the Masons that were working were also attending mass and they would see how the monks performed the rituals and they would see how the monks performed certain rituals to receive new brethren to the order. And the Cistercians, they did have a couple of ceremonies, one to receive the converts and then the others to receive actual members to become brothers of the order. And some of the similarities that you see in the two rituals, the Cistercian ritual and, the, and some of the Benedictine with the Masonic is as follows. A petition of the recipient who is going to profess or be initiated. The Cistercians had a homily, obviously that doesn't apply to Masons. They did have an examination of the candidate. They did have an intercession of the faithful or participation of the brethren. Monastic profession or Masonic obligation. Transformation of the vows into a binding act. Renunciation of goods or Masonic charity test. Imposition of the cow or Masonic apron. And finally, the recipient is led to the seat. In the monastery, when the ceremony was over, the monk was shown to his place within where the uh, eating hall or where he was going to sit inside of the chapel. And that always remained that way. And so the seating arrangement was fixed. Also, after an initiation of a candidate, he is brought and helped to his seat where all entered apprentice masons are supposed to sit in the lodge room. The only two other monk orders that I have not talked about are the Knights Templar, which I've just only mentioned and the Terranensians. I've also mentioned them, but I haven't talked about those two. And today I wanna to talk about the Terranensians. There's not much written about the Terranensians up until about 
2005. Uh, and that was by, uh, there was an article or a study, like, you know, semi-study done by a Canadian author, Francine Bernier, and that came out in 2005. Uh, the greatest mystery surrounding this order is how such a successful monastic order, which once controlled over 117 monastic houses, could have just disappeared so completely at, I mean, just so completely from historical record, we just don't have a lot. I believe there might be a book being written at the moment. It's almost done. Uh, but since 2005, there was, I, I think, whoever heard this said, hey, you know what, let me get on it. And I'm going to start researching this mysterious order. And I'm going to find out what's going on here. So I can't wait for that book to come out. Or maybe it's already out. The Terranensians were uh, another Reformed Benedictine order. The Cistercians are a Reformed Benedictine order. So they all follow the rule of St. Benedict. All right, just the same way as the Knights Templars followed the rule of St. Benedict, the same thing. And here's a little bit of history that I found on a website called Wales Monastery or Monastics. It's from the monastery over there. It says that the Terranensian order or order of Chiron had its origin in the forest of Crone, on the borders of Brittany and Maine. There, Bernard of Tiron, 1117, a Benedictine monk, there it is again, joined fellow ascetics Robert of Abrizel, founder of Fontainebleau, and Vitalis of Mortain, founder of Sovigny, to live as hermits. New recruits arrived, and by 1109, Bernard had established the order of Tiron near Chatres, North France. And Chatres, France, is very mysterious. And I believe that was the focal point of a book called uh, The Temple and the Lodge by uh, uh, Ley and Bajant. It was revolutionary. And this is where we get, for the first time, we begin to hear the, the, the name, the, the priori of, of Zion. And this later on came out in the movie that Tom Hanks came out of, and that was uh, the Da Vinci Code, I believe. This was the first of the new religious orders to spread internationally, and the Terranensians established abbeys and priori houses throughout France and the British Isles. The first house of the order in Wales was St. Dogmails, Pembrokeshire, which was founded 1113. Soon thereafter, it established two daughter houses in Pembrokeshire, namely Pill and Caldy. They were also famous for their prowess as master builders. We're talking about master masons. We're talking about building. We're talking about stonemasons, monks. And here we have a monk order who were famous for their prowess as master builders, much more so than any other of the Benedictine inspired orders. In their day, they were at the leading edge of architecture. They built many Scottish parish churches as well as their own abbeys. The first Terranensian abbey in Scotland was Selkirk, founded in 1113, followed by Kelso in 1128, and the Kilwining in 1140. And Kilwining, that's interesting because they go by Kilwinning Lodge number one 
they claim to be the oldest Masonic lodge at the time. And this is back in 1140 that we're talking about. The, the uh, Regis manuscript wasn't even written yet. It was 1390. That it was 200 years later that that was written. So we're, we're getting into some, you know, some tie-ins here, some, some more speculation, right? It is interesting to note that the building of Kelso took place in the same year as the Council of Troyes and the return of the original Templars from Jerusalem. It was built at the specific request of King David I, who was also a great friend to the Cistercians. Kelso is said to have been the most beautiful of all Scottish abbeys. They were also famous for their prowess as master builders. I bring that up again because up until now, I've just been mentioning how the Cistercians, they did, you know, the part of their rule and part of their belief is to get out there and perform physical labor. So they were out there uh, planting their own crops. They were out there cleaning. They were out there uh, rebuilding anything that was broken. But they weren't really known as, you know, master masons. Some of them did become, but now we're running into an order of monks, the Taroanensians, which was another Benedictine reformed order. But these guys, they were famous for their prowess as master builders. They were working with royalty to help build these monastic houses and who knows what other buildings. I mean, they had to have. It's easy. Once the royalty from those lands see who's building these buildings, these monasteries, and they, they like the architecture and they, like to, they, they really, really are impressed by their mastery of stonework, they're going to obviously go and go into business with them and, hey, can you build my castle? So they were working with the royalty, right? I believe so. Could they, though, have built them in alignment with geometrical and astronomical times of the year? Now, I just threw a curveball at everybody. I've been talking about uh, manuscripts, and I've been talking about monastic orders and rules and St. Benedict. Now, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm talking about a specific order that is known for their building prowess and their master masons, basically, is how I'm understanding it. But I'm asking... Did they build these? Did they align them, you know, with certain times of the year? Did they? And I, and I didn't say astrology, guys. I want to make a clear distinction between the two right now. I said astronomy, which was important to know, you know, what time of the year it was for them. They, they depended on that. They needed to know what time to plant, you know, how long it was going to take to grow them, and then when it's time to harvest. They need to know and that's based on astronomy. Even, even to this day, it's based on astronomy. You can't get around it. They had to know exactly when the winter was coming. Don't believe me. Okay, let's see what an article that came out in 2010 called Illuminating Research. CSU Monterey Bay Archaeologist Studies Rare Light Effects Admissions. Listen to this. Ruben G. Mendoza is on a quest for light. The 54-year-old archaeologist and professor of social and behavioral sciences at CSU Monterey Bay is seeking the rarest of lights, early morning rays of the solstice sun. We just passed the summer solstice on June 21st, and that's what he was looking for. Channeled 
by a centuries-old alchemy of architecture and astronomy, geometry, and awe into brilliant tabernacle illuminations at California's missions. If you guys haven't been to these missions, you got to go. They're beautiful. They're great. I love going to the one down at, at, um, at uh, Oceanside, uh, and then the next one in San Diego, and then the next one up, I believe, is Santa Barbara. They're, they're beautiful. And then San Juan Capistrano, these, these things are beautiful. But that's where he's going. It's a complex blend of solar geometry and Franciscan cosmology. So you can easily put in there Benedictine, Cistercian, Terranensian, Templar, says Mendoza, in which churches, windows, and altars were laid out in relation to the sun's position on a particular day of the year. Illuminations occur on solstice, equinox, or feast day mornings, says Mendoza, with light entering through a particular window and illuminating the tabernacle or an altar bulto or statue of a saint in a brilliant column of light. At Carmel, Mendoza describes the June 21st summer solstice phenomena as an intense beam which crosses the nave, pulses across the altar, then drops at an angle to rest squarely on the Eucharistic tabernacle, the sacred receptacle that holds the host, believed by the faithful to undergo transubstantiation during mass to become the body of Christ. It's so exciting to see the excitement of the community when they see it, Mendoza says. It's like a rebirth, documenting illuminations. Mendoza has overseen archaeological undertakings at Mission San Juan Bautista and Carmel Mission, headed archaeology and conservation efforts at San Carlos Cathedral in Monterey, and is leading archaeological digs at Mission Soledad in hopes of ensuring its eventual restoration. And so far, he has documented illuminations at 14 of California's 21 missions. In 2003, Mendoza captured the summer solstice tabernacle illumination at Carmel Mission after several years of effort. The winter solstice illumination of the Royal Presidio Chapel at Sant of Santa Barbara, which I've been to and it's, it's incredible, this thing is huge. I think it's the biggest mission in California. Took four years because of rain, fog, illness, and a scheduled out-of-state conference. After a three-day delay because of cloud cover, he finally recorded it in December 2008. There's nothing accidental about them. Carmel, San Juan Bautista, and the other missions with illuminations were built on a meridian, an architectural orientation to the sunrise of a particular day. The complex solar geometry of the missions is less surprising, says Mendoza, given that the missions were built in the era of a maritime economy where celestial navigation was a common skill and the fact that European churches were often built on meridians. If we go back to the medieval era, that's what I've been talking about this whole time, we know that the churches of Italy would be laid out in such a way that they would plant a post in the ground on the feast day of a particular day. Wait for the sun to rise and it would cast a shadow, says Mendoza. Then the friars would tie a rope and drag it along the shadow and build a church along that alignment. Seen in Carmel, the pastor at Mission San Juan Bautista first pointed out an illumination to Mendoza on December 21st, 1997. And that is the winter solstice, by the way. 
the morning of the winter solstice. Mendoza was skeptical that San Juan Bautista was unique and started searching for similar occurrences at churches across the U.S., Central America, and Mexico. In 2003, when he witnessed the summer solstice illumination at Carmel Mission, he could see the start of a pattern. Once I discovered it at Carmel, he said, I realized it could not be a coincidence in a diocese with seven missions. At Mission San Miguel, illuminations occur as progressions in five-day intervals, beginning with the October 4th illumination of the Statue of St. Francis, the illumination of the Tabernacle, the Statue of St. Michael the Archangel, and the Statue of St. Anthony on October 19th. Significantly, immediately above St. Anthony's head is the painted image of the stigmata with the five wounds of Christ. The five-day intervals, I believe, bear direct reference to the sacred numerology, says Mendoza. The pattern at the mission is reversed at the vernal equinox, says Mendoza. When the illumination begin with St. Anthony and end with St. Francis. That, for me, is one of the most complex solar geometries that I've seen at any of the California missions, says Mendoza. Spring equinox illuminations at Santa Ines and Santa Jose missions are repeated September 21st, the second equinox of the year. At Mission San Luis Rey, San Mendoza, says Mendoza, a lantern affixed to the copula projects, a Trinitarian illumination, where three spears of light project onto the altar. Mission Saint Santa Clara would also exhibit a summer solstice illumination, he says. If its essential window hadn't been blocked during reconstruction, as for Mendoza, a sense of wonder continues even after years of research. And he has plenty left to wonder about. More than 100,000 churches were built in Mexico alone during the mission period, says Mendoza, along with countless churches across the Southwest. For me, this is an unfinished agenda, he says. These sites are fascinating, but we've only begun to scratch the surface. Mendoza is working on a book on archaeoastronomy in the Americas. So this is interesting because we begin to enter upon something called Masonic astronomy. And from just that little article, you can begin to understand what that means. And it looks like the monks that built these missions along the coast of California definitely use Masonic astronomy. Not that they were Masons like we know them today, but they were, you know, uh, building these, these missions using Masonry and the science of Masonry, but they were also using geometrical alignments and astronomical alignments, which, which takes a long time to learn and to understand how to do it precisely, because in order for all that to happen, you have to have a lot of practice, a lot of observation, a lot of patience and discipline. And they did it, which reminds me, you know, because we're talking of astronomy, astrology, and people get it confused all the time. The Fortune 500 companies, if you listen to anything that Dan Pena says about how these high performance people behave and some of the success habits that they have, they have some sort of physical fitness habit to help them uh, stay in good health. They do. But before that, I wanted to talk about something even, even 
how can I say it? Uh, it's not strange, but it might sound strange to you who haven't heard it. The majority of these Fortune 500 companies, they have an astronomer slash astrologer on their board. And you don't believe me, look up an article that talks about that. I believe they came out like in, uh, uh, I forgot what magazine, I'm, I'm not sure if it was Rolling Stone or one of those magazines. And, and that's what the, the article was about, how these astronomers slash astrologers were on the board. And they didn't dress all weird, you know, with bandanas on their head. And they brought the, you know, the, the, the ball, the crystal ball. And they're going to know they, they were dressed in three-piece suits. And that doesn't mean that everybody on the board believes in that. But someone does. And they believe it in, enough for them to have this astronomer slash astrologer on the board. And they listen to his feedback when it came time. Because they're going to use anything at their disposal to get the edge. And if that means that I got to listen to this astronomer to tell me that the moon is here and Mars is over there. And because of that, and you know, this was born on this date and therefore it's, it's a better idea to wait one week from now in order to make that deal, they're going to do it. I'm not saying that they always do it, but this, this is happening. The second thing I wanted to mention is that the first thing I mentioned was that these Fortune 500 companies, these, these high-performance people, they've all adopted some kind of physical fitness program regimen. They want to stay in shape. They want to stay physically fit because they understand that if they do this, they have a better chance of being able to cope with all the stresses that they have, having their energy at a high level all the time, and being able to withstand more and more and more stresses where, where they get comfortable. You know, Dan Pena says, you got to be, begin to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So it's just second nature. Well, a lot of that is gonna be helped by you adopting some kind of physical fitness regimen. And like I said, and I continue to say, whether it's walking, doing some jumping jacks, jogging, get on the stationary, get on the treadmill, weight lift, do some crunches, do some push-ups, squats, whatever it's gonna be. But when you begin to do this consistently, and you begin to feel better, and then you begin to eat better, uh, you're, you are going to be in a better position to be able to withstand the stresses of life and deal with them a whole lot better because your mind will be in a better position. You're just going to be in a, in a completely different body, mind, and soul position to deal with this stuff. This is Masonic Muscle, and this has been an exercise in speculation and critical thinking. Until next time. Thank you.